Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Romano Guardini, who is very integral in what's called the liturgical movement, something I had no idea even existed before this podcast. Also, I want to make mention of a brand new conference that we're doing this spring. It is the first ever young adult liturgy conference. It's called Transfigured. It will be in Chicago on April 22nd. That is the eve of Divine Mercy Sunday, just to give you some context. And basically, if you like what you've been learning here from Dennis and Chris, I highly recommend that you come to this conference. Uh, They will both be speaking on different topics there, along with Father Karchi, who is the rector of Mundelein Seminary, and Alexis Katarna, who is a graduate of the Liturgical Institute. And then the whole day will be wrapped up with uh, Holy Mass celebrated by Archbishop Blaise Supich. So if you're a young adult and you've really enjoyed this podcast, I highly recommend that you head on over to www.com btransfigured.com. Head on over there, check out the website, and without further ado, episode 17 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. (laughs) This is going to be take two. What you didn't know is that we already had a conversation and we didn't record it, but I'll start the same way I started the first time. Those were the most brilliant things I've ever said. (laughs) Well, you'll have to be brilliant again. I'm sorry. Uh, So uh, we're going to talk today about Romano Guardini, which to me sounds like a great Italian pasta. Great. 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 G-R-A-T-E. Romano grated Romano. Oh, yeah. Grated Romano over a little Guardini pasta. Yeah. You could say almost anything in Italian and say that's a kind of pasta. Romano Guardini. Right. Alla yeah. vodka. So, uh, so, Dennis, you uh, really wanted to uh, talk about this guy. I know little to nothing about him. So why, why is he a big deal? I mean, I understand he wrote this book called The Spirit of the Liturgy which should not be confused with Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy, but who, who was or first? Or Dennis McNamara's The Spirit oh. of the Liturgy. Well, Catholic Church architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy. Okay, so We're multiple bo- people are plagiarizing yeah. other people's works. It's okay. not plagiarizing, it's, it's honorific. So, oh, got it. Is that I, actually a word, honorific? It is, yeah. Okay. It was either that or, was, or Dennis was going to call his book The Bible of Architecture, but he thought that was too presumptuous. Yeah, that was a little too haughty, you know, to oh, say yeah. the Bible of I would never buy that, but I would buy Catholic Architecture and the Spirit of Liturgy. But see, in Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy has a section on architecture that was so influential that the whole way that I saw liturgical architecture that I wanted to give honor to his title. Now, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, because he was so inspired by Romano Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy and wanted to honor him by calling his book the exact same thing. And Guardini took it from somebody else in the yeah. late 19th century. See, this is a real spirit of the council crowd here we're talking about. Yeah, so what does that mean? I mean, we're, we talk spirit of yeah. or spirit. So what does that mean? We talked a little bit about it in uh, one of our podcasts, Vatican II, the spirit of Vatican II. So what do we mean here when we say spirit of the liturgy? Well, spirit is a word that kind of has a bad rap in some circles now, but in its original intention, it meant kind of the internal essence of something. It wasn't just the external acting out of the things, but what is what is the interior purpose? What is the very nature of a thing? So what's the spirit of family life? What's the spirit of marriage, the spirit of fatherhood? 
you know, you could give somebody a rule book on being a father, but it's not the same as loving your children and living in the family as a model of human life that God set up that you can't really list all the rules of parenthood. You just live in it according to its own nature. Sure. As, as the word spirit suggests, it's the anima. It's what, what makes it uh, come to life, brings life into, I mean, you can read, as you say, a manual on how to be a dad or something like that, but uh, it's a very different thing than uh, a fatherhood in real life. So what is the, what is in the liturgy that makes it come to life? What is its essence? What makes it transformative? What makes it uh, real and true? That's what that's what the spirit of the liturgy in each of these contexts means. Which I feel is kind of the basis of what, what our conversations are like here on the podcast, is that that's kind of what we're trying to get at. So, right, The essential question. I mean, people tease me all the time for, they say I use the O word. Do you know what the O word is, Chris? Ontological? Oh, you even know the O word. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, antos is, is being the study of the nature of a thing. If you don't know what the nature of a thing is, you can't know what to do with it. it what's the nature of traffic laws? Well, I don't know, so I'll just go through red lights. What's the nature of marriage? Well, I'll just you know have affairs. If you don't know the nature of something, you can't uh, act properly. And so the, a lot of the questions about liturgy that we have are growing out of not knowing. And so Guardini is trying to get at this essential ontological character of the liturgy in this little book that he wrote in about 1918, which um, he was still a student, you know, his graduate student working on his doctorate, and it was so influential that it, it went to press, and then it got translated right away and just kind of disseminated, particularly around Europe at that time. Yeah, Cardinal Ratzinger credits this work by Guardini in 1918 as inaugurating, at least in Germany, the liturgical movement. Oh, wow. And so then when Cardinal Ratzinger writes his book on the spirit of the liturgy, he wants to do, and this is why he named it similarly, is he wanted to do the same thing in our own age, is to spur, uh, to begin a new liturgical movement in our own age that brings the liturgy uh, to life. So those of, those of you who are listening who are big fans of Benedict and the spirit of the liturgy, uh, you two would highly recommend reading this book as its um, kind of origin to his thought process, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the great classics of the 20th century. And, you know, sometimes people study liturgy as the history of liturgy. It's like, well, Guardini is one of the big figures. We have to know what he said. And that's okay. But it's really the content of this book that is eternally true because not he thought, not because he wrote it so beautifully, which he did write nicely, that he figured out what the liturgy is about, what it's always been about, what it will always be about. And it's it's just a joy to to mine the gems out of this book. So uh, so I say let's dive in. You say there are three parts that he kind of broke it down. What are those parts, and and how do we begin? Well, there are a whole bunch of chapters, but they um, they all have the title of the liturgy at the end of the title. So the first one's the prayer of the liturgy, and so again the nature the question is what's the nature of the liturgy uh, itself, and he he plays off these two facets. You know, one of the things about a lot of Christian faith is that it has to hold two things together. You know, the, our our father's a good example, our father which is a very intimate kind of familial word, who art in heaven. So you're like dad, but you're far away. <laughs> How do you hold these two together? So the liturgy... Okay, yeah, well, in, in the incarnation itself, you're, you're holding together um, the incarnate Christ who is at the same time fully God and fully man. How do you hold these together? And these first Christological heresies were, were just... We're wrestling with this question, is Jesus God or is he man? Is he both? Is he neither? Is he some sort of third thing? How do you hold these things uh, uh, in, in a union, in a, in a hypostasis? Same thing with the liturgy. Is it a personal experience where I go and kneel and have my one-on-one time with God and be left alone? Or is it this corporate experience where you walk around and you do the 30-minute sign of peace and turn it into kind of this uh, social gathering? 
So the first question he wants to answer is, what's the nature of the liturgy according to this kind of social aspect and then this kind of objective uh, aspect? And he says flat out uh, that liturgy is a, a supreme example of an objectively established rule of spiritual life. So it's, it's got this. You're going to need to put that in like terms that I'm going to be able to understand. Okay. Well, when you talk about anything that's objective, it means it has a sort of pre-existing reality of its own to which you are conformed. Now, you might have a... As, yeah, as opposed to subjective, which is your personal interpretation. Or. Right, and they're both important, but you might have a lot of feelings about liturgy because when you were a kid, the nuns hit you with sticks, and from then on, you're mad at nuns and you're mad at priests. That doesn't change the objective reality of the liturgy, even though it's a pastoral concern that has to we be... Do, we, do, we do not condone that, just so you know. Well, you know, Kevin Thornton, who works with us here at LTP, is like our only living link to preconciliar history. Talk about nuns. Just bring up nuns from the 50s here, and there will be a subjective response pretty fast. And, you know, that's okay. But that doesn't change the objectivity of the, the rule of life for, for nuns, for instance. So when things are done badly, it doesn't necessarily mean that what ought to be true about them uh, is no longer true. So basically, he's trying to argue that there is an objective reality of the liturgy and that it has two things that it does. It provides for the common needs of everyone in the room. So you have this universal quality, but then it also has to provide for the particulars of any individual in the room. Yeah, and even besides that, not just the, those in the room, but uh, it provides for the needs of every culture around the world and in every culture throughout time. And so the liturgical prayer of the church is something uh, in the order of this uh, objective, transcendent, reality that is applicable to all peoples in any given time and peoples throughout time and in all places. This is the flavor, the essence, or the spirit of the liturgy. Yeah, we had a, a speaker here a few months ago uh, named Lauren Pristis, and she wrote a book about the collects of the Mass, which are these little prayers most people don't really listen to at Mass. It's something the priest says before you sit down, you know. But if you listen to them, she said they have to be universal, and they have to apply to everybody in the room, but they have to ask something quite specific. So otherwise it wouldn't really apply to anyone. So you can't say, Father, for those of us who have birthdays today, you know, would you please bless them? And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the people who don't have birthdays that day are, are left out, or the people who have pink eye, you know, who doesn't have pink eye? Well, it's not a prayer. So they have you. to be specifically generic. Well, exactly right. So <laughs> it'll be a prayer like, Father, we ask you to bear your mighty arm and bring the salvation which you have promised through your son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That applies to everyone in the room at the same time as general enough to, um, to apply to everyone, but to be specific to everybody's needs. Here's another example. What we used to call the general intercessions, or which are now called the universal prayer. Yeah, we had to stop calling them GIs because that's something different. So go ahead. But in both cases, general and universal, uh, there are, it's not called to mention specific persons in the general intercessions, as the name itself suggests. And so, at least according to the general instruction, the general instruction. <laughs> oh, there it is again. Uh, individuals are not, uh, it's not envisioned uh, by, the, by the church that individuals be mentioned because they're not this specific individual type. They're of a more general and universal character. But everybody in the room should be able to relate to them in some way. And this is the nature of liturgy because it's an act of the mystical body. So liturgy is primarily the action of Christ. Christ in heaven is at the right hand of the Father pleading for the people on earth, and he's offering himself, and we're doing all those things too, except that we're doing them as one body with Christ. So every thumb, you know, every toenail of the mystical body has a need, 
and yet it I'm going to just go ahead and say that's a really weird way to go, but yeah, just keep going. <laughs> well, that's how it works, you know. Some of us are uh, important and visible. Some of us are less important, and, I mean, oral important, but I mean less visible in the mystical body. And they all have a need that is different from every other member of the body, but they all have to direct all their intention toward the, the prayers of the head. So he, he lays out this flat-out objectivity of the liturgy that it's uh, the exclusive aim of the liturgy is the glorification of God and the sanctification of humanity. That's always the case, right? So God is glorified and the human body is uh, sanctified. And so you have those objective realities. But then the question is, how do you do that? Someone might glorify God by being uh, a musician. Someone might glorify God by being an architect. Someone might glorify God by um, doing a particular role in liturgy. And they might like doing those things. They might have emotional responses. But he says the primary aim of the liturgy is not the expression of the individual's reverence. I'm really pious, and I look really pious, and my eyes are closed, and I ignore everybody around me. Look at me, look at me, look how holy I look kneeling at Mass. That's not really uh, the goal. It's not a group of individuals who are doing their pious stuff together, but it's the united body of all the faithful united to the head doing the action of Christ, sacramentally acting as Christ. Yeah, well, so it's not individuals doing an individual thing. They're individuals doing a corporate thing, uh, just like, you know, in a body, you know, each cell retains this individual integrity and identity, but we don't act that way in the liturgy. We come together into uh, an action, a, a corporate action, literally the action of a corpus of the body of Christ. So individuals coming together and doing a corporate act. And this mystical body theology, which uh, uh, what Pius the Twelfth wrote, Mystici Corporis, nineteen forty-three. I mean, th this is a key principle, not just theologically and ecclesiologically, but liturgically as well. That um, and you know, you think politically what was going on, kind of a uh, uh, an extreme individualism on the one hand, perhaps in the West, and uh, in a socialism or communism on the other hand. Well, which one? Which is the right answer? Well, the, maybe middle ground isn't the right way to say it, but the theology of the mystical body considers both of these and respects the individual and sees him as a, as a member of the larger corpus. And so this is what the mystical body is, the church. And when we come together in the liturgy, as Dennis is saying, it's the same type of thing. We, were, we come together as individuals, but we kind of check in a certain way our individual preferences, certainly at the door, uh, in view of a larger corporate truth and action. I think going uh, with the socialism and communism, I don't think anybody's written the spirit of socialism or, or communism, but to kind of clarify what you guys are talking about, first and foremost is the objective um, reality of liturgy. So what, what is actually happening here and what liturgy is designed for. My, my question is then where does the subjectivity come in in terms of my personal devotions in mass and things like that um you you said chris to kind of that individuals check the check that at the door but at a certain point you know we are still individuals so how do we incorporate that subjectivity into something that's objective right and this is exactly what he put his finger on because if there was you know the time before the council and people didn't know what the priest was saying they probably didn't have microphones, they didn't have great lighting, so the priest would be far away, whispering at a typical low mass, and people didn't really know what the priest was doing. I mean, they might be able to follow in their missal if they were really attentive, but it would, it's pretty hard back then to follow along, so they would do their private devotions instead. At least this was the claim that people made, that people would say the rosary, and then they'd wait around for the, the communion, if they went to communion at all. And so that was a highly individualistic approach to liturgy, maybe not intentionally, but 
de facto, you know, on the ground. That's that's all there was to do if you didn't know what the priest was doing. Uh, this is what our living link to history, Kevin Thornton, has told us about the days before the council. He's the only guy at the Liturgical Institute old enough to remember before the council. Why is he hey, not? I like Kevin Thornton. I think he's a good guy. Oh, well, we all like him, but I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh, well, <laughs> we'll hear about it. But you, you know. But, I mean, I, I was going into the city the other day, and I stopped into a church on the way to go to Mass, and it happened to be a low, extraordinary form Mass, and I didn't hear a word of it. I mean, there were about 10 people in this giant church, and the priest was gliding back and forth in front of the altar, and it was beautiful to look at and had a kind of mystical quality, but I didn't know what he was saying. So I did my best to concentrate and pay attention. Um, but if that's the only thing you had in liturgy in the 19th century, you might not have really known what was going on. And so the substitution of the private devotion for liturgy was a major thing they wanted to correct this time. What is the nature of the Mass? What does a person who's not a priest do at Mass? What is their role in this corporate um, body? Guardini said in his time there were kind of two sorts of people that he noticed. One he called the strictly ritual and objective. These are the people who are just like, the ritual must be done properly. I'm going to have this interior liturgical sense of the universality of the Mass. The lex orandi, or the law of prayer, is what matters. And that the sort of universality of the Mass is primary. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then he noticed there's another kind of person he called the strongly marked personal element. That they're highly individual. They loved their popular devotions. They were always interested in the local concerns and uh, like the purely personal needs. Um, and again, neither of these are wrong. It's just that they each have their place. Which one of these properly belongs to the liturgy itself? And he said, these are, always exist side by side, but the objectivity of the liturgy is always primary. And so you have to bring the highly personal people into the larger question of liturgy. Yeah, but see, to balance this, and we should say, too, that this was not simply a problem. It may have been more of a problem, perhaps. This is arguable. Uh, in Gardini's time in 1918, I mean, the nature of the liturgy stays the same today as it was in 1918. So it, even today, in 2016, it retains this objective and transcendent uh, flavor to it. Um, and so all of us, whether 1918 or 2016, need to balance this. So you were talking about these two types of uh, people or two types of uh, temperaments. And to be sure, this uh, you know, I, I think is a real thing. Um, I think, but within each individual, these two types of emphases need to be present. Right? So we can't simply be uh, a ritualistic, objective uh, type, nor can we be a merely personal or individual uh, expressive type. Uh, but in a sense, both of us should have both of the, or each of us should have both of these types of temperaments. Now, if you go to the liturgy and you experience this uh, uh, transcendent, uh, objective type of prayer, well, the Christian life needs something else to balance that. Now, the problem in Gardini's time, as you were describing, Dennis, but even in our own time, whether it's ex ordinary form, extraordinary form, whatever it might be, uh, is to balance that with something that's more individual to me, more specified to me, more personal at the same time. And this is where he will say that the devotional life of the Christian is entirely uh, necessary because otherwise the liturgy becomes sort of rigid and lifeless and too beyond. Remember, it's supposed to be as applicable to, to me as someone in any other age or in any other place. And so 
the Christian life has to have at the same time something more human in a certain sense that enlivens uh, uh, the spiritual life and when taken in, in concert with the liturgy makes for a more uh, whole uh, spiritual spirituality. Right. It's always a both situation, not an either or. It's not either objective or subjective. It's objective and subjective together, but always in the right place. So the objective wins, but the subjective is important. And so Guardini actually says there's no greater mistake than discarding the elements of the spiritual life for the sake of the liturgy, so the, or the devotional life for the sake of the liturgy. And he says the devotional life gets nourished by the liturgy, and then it leads back to it. So that's always one of the key things about devotions is they, they draw from the, the, the riches of the liturgy, and then they go express them all over the world, right? Yeah, but in Gardini's time, as you were explaining, there was this unnatural, something contrary to the spirit of the liturgy that was going on, this uh, uh, artificial uh, coming together, an amalgam of uh, individual devotions and objective liturgy at the same time. See, and this was part of what the liturgical movement sought to set straight. Well, in our own time, too, even if in a different way, there's this coming together of the subjective with the objective, right? So, you know, each postmodern person wants to see his or her own uh, desires and likes, you know, a very popular liturgical maxim is, I like it. We want the liturgy to be something that uh, speaks to our own specific taste. And so, you know, you used to say, the great thing about being Catholic was you could go to Mass anywhere across the world and you could just plug in right away. You knew what was going to happen. But now, there's a little bit more um, diversity, which maybe isn't the right way to say it. I mean, they should be, in a certain sense, different in times and places, but not radically so. Now you're not quite sure. And even in, a, in an own parish, in a single parish, you know, the 5 o'clock Saturday night Mass might be the folk Mass, and the, the early Sunday Mass might be sort of a low, without music spoken Mass, and then the 8 o'clock Mass might be, have a little bit of Latin in it, and then, the, you know, even in a parish, and then you got the youth Mass. So even in a parish, there can be all sorts of tailoring to particular groups that maybe contrary to the spirit of the liturgy. So it's when the subjective and individualistic comes into the liturgy, whose nature is objective and transcendent, that things start to get a little bit muddy. Yeah, years ago, my friend Matt Fish, now Father Matt Fish in Washington, D.C., decided to torture me and take me to a, uh, a life teen mass. Out Wait, in, so in was his vocation director a fisher of fish? <laughs> I guess so. All right, sorry, go ahead. And uh, I think he was just trying to see if my head would explode, but he took me to a Life Teen Mass. This was a long time ago, and Life Teen was a little more loosey-goosey then. And we went to this Mass, and it was full of teenagers, which is fine, except they all knew all the specifics of that Mass. The, father, the priest would say, I love you, and they would say, we love you, Father. And then during the Eucharistic prayer, they all got up and were arm over arm, shoulders behind him on the, on the sanctuary. And they had this little code that they did, and it became their little club, their little mass club. And that's where their subjectivity completely overwhelmed the objectivity of the liturgy, because I, I couldn't participate. I didn't know those rules. Um, and so it's not so much that subjectivity is wrong, but it can't overwhelm the objectivity of the liturgy because liturgy has to be universal. It has to be open to everyone who comes there. There's legitimate variety from time to time uh, that sometimes you have to learn. But if that subjective response overwhelms, then you're not really doing liturgy anymore. You're just emoting what your feelings and I think are that, at the moment. I think it's safe to say, maybe, maybe it's not, um, that this subjectivity can happen on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're trying to make 
the the mass more of like a meal with friends or whether you're becoming you know super ritualistic where it's like you know everybody else is doing this wrong and, and I'm doing it the right way there's some subjectivity there and so we have to understand that objective is first and I I mean is that does that make sense or yeah, it's not on the political spectrum. The objectivity of the liturgy is what it is according to the rights of the church and the books the church gives us and the instructions that she gives to tell us how to do it. That's the point of unity. Anytime you step away from that in either direction, you wind up leaving the, the spirit yeah, of the liturgy. So certainly objectivity is primary in the liturgy. It may not be simply primary in the spiritual life of the yeah, individual, that's what I was, but yeah, certainly exactly. in the liturgy. And that's where the devotions come in because, you know, I, I today uh, while we're recording this is the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, which I have a, a devotion to, and so I can approach the liturgy from a Franciscan mindset, but still understand the objectivity of the liturgy, but it just helps me understand it in a Franciscan way as opposed to Benedictine or Dominican, you know. Right. So is the liturgy simple, or is it complicated? Is God one, or is God many? I think it's simply complicated. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Oh, okay. <laughs> How is God one and three at the same time? How does he have perfect simplicity and yet have millions and billions of members and the angels and the saints and the people on earth. Holding those things together is always tough, and you can choose to accentuate one side or the other. Uh, but if one gets accentuated at the expense of the other, then you start to have problems. And this, this is what the church gets at when, um, when she says unity in worship is, is a primary goal. And I think this is kind of, we've been circling around this, this whole conversation is this whole unity thing, which is really important. And I think we'll probably get to talk about that more exclusively on another podcast. But um, I, I definitely that, that objective lens to put on when you go to, to Mass this Sunday, I think is really important. Yeah, maybe another example to make this uh, is that, that Gardini uses at one point uh, even the person of Jesus, you know, the, the, the personal individualistic subjective wants to, to read about the Jesus of the Gospels who, you know, dressed in a certain way and said particular words. He says they would love to, they would trade it all in just to hear what his actual voice sounded like. You know, it was a very human, uh, touchable type of Jesus. But the Jesus of the liturgy, He's not a different Jesus, but there's a, he's, what is uh, emphasized is the transcendent Jesus reigning eternally in heaven at God's right hand. He doesn't cease to be tangible, but he's, uh, what is emphasized about him is his kingship and his lordship over all of the universe. It, this is the nature of the liturgy. This is the spirit of the liturgy, this objective uh, Christ and this objective type of celebration. When taken together with a healthy devotional life, it... You know, one of the one of the phrases that the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy uses is that it expresses and fosters. So the liturgy should um, express, you know, be able to to put words to what we wish to express. But at the same time, it fosters in us uh, this universal sense. And so it really is a formative. It's not a, just a, a schoolroom. It's a it's it's a womb. It forms in us the image of Christ, who is both of these things, transcendent and entirely imminent. Some time ago, there was a blog. I don't think it's active anymore, but it was called the Shrine of the Holy Wapping. W-H-A-P-P-I-N-G. Shrine of the Holy Wapping. <laughs> okay. And it was a medieval devotion to the ankles of Christ that were hurt when he was carrying the cross, and he hit his ankles on the steps, and he bled from his ankles, you know, which is this funny kind of thing, but it's a real aspect of Christ's passion. You know, it wasn't just the shoulder that was hurt, you know, when he was carrying the cross. And so it's a very peculiar and particular devotion, 
And you wouldn't really, you know, bring that up in the Mass all the time. But if you particularly want to look at the hidden mysteries of the wounds of Christ, then that's fine. And then if you're inspired by Christ's sacrifice, say, wow, his sacrifice was so real. I can't wait to go receive communion again because I want to partake in that sacrifice that even caused the, you know, the bleeding of his ankles. And then you come back and are nourished in your desire to honor Christ by the Eucharist. That's how it should work. Lead you to the Mass and then back uh, from it. Well, uh, I have certainly enjoyed this conversation, and per the huge, uh, I've learned a ton uh, that I did not know before. Um, but I wanted to take a, a quick moment uh, at the end of this to um, talk about some friends of ours who also have a podcast that we were trying to keep this secret from, but somehow they figured out about us. Uh, the Three Dogs North podcast, who they, uh, they do their podcast on the same campus that, that we have, and they, uh, they had mentioned that our podcast sucks on their podcast. Um, they said I, it with a smile. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was in, it was in jest for sure. Um, but I think their subjective was preceding the objective. <laughs> so, I mean, you can, you can listen to their podcast and make up your own mind. Well but, played, Jeff. But see, oh, they used the subjective to express the objective through irony. That's what they did. That's true. So, yeah, but I, yeah. I'll tell you this. I still don't know the ontological reality of their podcast. I'm still trying to scratch the surface on Yeah, they're that. working that out, too. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so thank you uh, for, to the guys at Three Dogs North. Um, I, I definitely enjoy listening to your podcast. So um, I really hope we can come back to, to Guardini. This has been really amazing. And obviously, you've just scratched the surface. But... Um, I think it's time to answer uh, a Liturgy Guys email question. We'll look for the ontology behind the question. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we have another uh, question for the Liturgy Guys here. Uh, This one actually came in through our uh, Facebook page, the Liturgical Institute Facebook page. And uh, this comes from Anonymous. Are priests allowed to preach or deliver their homily not in the lectern or at the ambo? Mm. Uh, So what say you? Well, it doesn't really matter what I say. Okay. So (laughs) what say the church? Yeah, there we go. (laughs) So um, what the general instruction of the Roman Missal says about this, and this is at number 136, it says, the priest standing at the chair or at the ambo itself, or if appropriate, in another worthy place, gives the homily. All right, so it appears there's three options. There's the ambo or lectern. Second, the chair. Third, another worthy place. Um, I get the feeling that there's something else coming. No, well, there's nothing else oh, okay. coming. So I guess the question would be, uh, who decides what is a worthy oh, place? Okay. And maybe even before that, you know, why, why is the ambo in the chair specifically named and considered worthy? You don't see it very often that a priest gives a homily from the chair. Occasionally you'll see a bishop, especially at an ordination, they might sit down and give their exhortation to the people about to be ordained from the chair. But the chair is the seat of authority. It's the place uh, from which this authoritative teaching happens. And so, although in America, usually the students are seated and the professor is standing, uh, in the ancient tradition, the students would be. Yes. Uh, but there is a vestige of this, right? If you're, uh, if you're a really good professor, you can you win get, the chair yeah, of... the endowed chair. Right. And what does it mean to have a chair? It means you have established enough wisdom and accomplishment to be an authority. So, so preaching from the chair is one option. Preaching from the ambo, of course, is another option because the ambo is the architectural extension or the suitable place within the church building that magnifies the importance and the dignity of the word of God, not only proclaimed, 
from the lectionary, but also expounded upon in the homily. So that's those are the two ordinary places. And then, is there ever an occasion for another worthy place? Well, maybe. Um, well, I would say if it's if it's listed, it has to exist, right? Well, yeah, you'd hope so. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a little chapel somewhere else, or maybe there's a baptism, or who knows what. There's some reason why it would make sense to preach somewhere else. So the, the general instruction always allows for options, tends to give them an order of preference, so or even is kind of Roman language for if there's a real need, you know. And I think it actually says something like that, you know, if there's a, a reason, if, if appropriate. appropriate. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. interesting. The old general instruction said in another suitable place, and the the new translation says in a worthy place, and that's actually an. an important distinction is walking up and down the aisle just to feel like um you know father is with the people is that a reason to be a word is that a worthy place or is that a suitable place according to individual judgment i think worthy is probably the a better theological response well it's a little unclear i guess but i think you know we need particular times and places uh set aside for all sacred things and to to kind of have a, a, a wandering homilist um we hope that's not a sacramental sign of a wandering homily, but it's, uh, it, we need a, a, a certain particular place helps to give permanence and substance and meaning to the words that might be said. Right. So the laws of the church are fairly flexible. They take into account many needs and situations, and they give you kind of the best option first, and then they allow for secondary options if there's a genuine necessity. If appropriate. If appropriate, and, and, but still worthy, always maintaining the worthiness of the liturgy itself. All right. Well, uh, I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. And if any of you would like to uh, send a question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.